Let's take our reading uh, from Galatians chapter 4. Our series in Galatians is entitled Living Free. And our section today is Paul's further uh, reasoning and instruction about what it means to, to live a free life in Christ Jesus. You might mention, just as you're finding your way to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 8, that Brian Johnson's book Amazing Grace, there's a copy in our foyer here, but you can uh, access a digital copy as well from churchesofgod.info website is uh, Brian's work through of the book of Galatians as well. He does it in a slightly different order to us in terms of heading breaks and such like. But there are study questions at the end of the chapters and it's, it's worth having a look at that uh, just to get a, an additional perspective on some of the teaching. And you can sit down and study that in your own time. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 8. We've got a significant section to read today. So follow with me if you can. Galatians 4 verse 8, formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that... If you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us, so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children... For whom I am again in the pains of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. How I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result. Of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labour. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. 
At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5 verse 1 is probably the key text in the whole letter and it sets the tone for what's going to come next week but it concludes what Paul's been working up to in his, uh, his letter thus far. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Paul is continuing in the section we've read to persuade, doing his best to persuade the churches of God in Galatia. Uh, That's a number of churches, we've already said that, together in unity of service for God's glory. Encouraging them to foresee the attraction and the tendency they, they were having to go after the teaching of Judaizers, who were men who were coming through and saying that they had to observe the Jewish traditions and the Jewish law in order to be truly saved. He was encouraging them and teaching them, as we've seen repeatedly in the letter, because it's his major theme and focus, so we keep coming back to it, is that salvation, according to God, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's no other way to be saved. So these guys that are coming in and are saying you have to be circumcised and you have to observe all of the ritual that was associated with the Old Testament that was given by God to the Jews, it will not save. Christ had come to fulfill the law and to achieve it perfectly because humanity on its own could never do it. So now salvation is by God's grace. To be received by faith. And it's in Christ who has achieved all things. Paul is saying to those who have started well and have gathered themselves into churches of God. He's he's saying to them any departure from the purity of the gospel is going to be slavery once again. They've been slaves before and they're going to end up slaves again. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Paul chooses his language carefully and of course he's under the, um, the power of the Holy Spirit when he does it. Notice that he says that it's Christ that sets us free. It's the Messiah, the one that God had promised, who has stepped into humanity, God the Son, who has come to live the perfect life in all of its fullness and to honour God's law in all that he could do and only he could do. It is him who has come to set us free. He's our focus. God, when he was speaking of the Messiah coming in Isaiah 61, there's, there's a section there in Isaiah 61 from verse 1 onwards that is spoken by the Messiah. And actually Jesus read it in the synagogue in, in Nazareth and we read about that in Luke chapter 4. And part of it says, he sent me to proclaim freedom 
That's what the Lord had come to do. To proclaim freedom. Christ is the one who sets us free. God the Son who has come as a man has come to set us free from slavery. And we'll see the various types of slavery that he sets us free from as we go through this. One day, as we have it recorded for us in John chapter 8, the Lord was interacting with the Jewish religious leaders of his day who were very proud that they were Abraham's descendants and therefore considered themselves automatically to be God's people. Because we're children of Abraham, uh, God will bless us by virtue of the fact that we can call Abraham our father. The Lord challenged them and said, actually, you're slaves. You're slaves to sin. John 8, verse 34, he says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And the Bible tells us, God tells us elsewhere that all of us have sinned and fall short of his glory. So all of us are slaves to sin, including those men and women who were interacting with the Lord Jesus that day. They thought they had a freedom. And the Lord was pointing out to them that their sinfulness was slavery. And actually their adherence to everything to do with Judaism was never going to save them. And that was a slavery as well. So he says, in John, verse, uh, John 8 verse 36, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He was laying claim to being the Son of God. And he was saying, I am the one who can set you free from this. Why? It's because he is the one who has come into humanity to live the life that we could never live in our sinfulness. In his sinless perfection, he is able to honour God. And then to go to the cross, <coughs> willingly to give himself as the substitute sacrifice for sinners to bear the wrath of God against their sin in their place so that by faith they can lay hold of him as the saviour. That was the purpose for which he'd come. That was the freedom that he had come to bring us into. Paul wants us to see in this portion that we've read together how our twisted sinfulness and also the sinister work of Satan and demonic forces makes rule-keeping religion for salvation so very attractive. But actually, it will result in slavery to things that are worthless and will never save us from sin's eternal consequences. So he takes them back to when he first met them. 4 verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. Already said that we're all sinners. We don't know God. That is the sinner's condition. We do not know God. Paul elsewhere, Romans chapter 1 verse 18, said that we suppress the truth in our righteousness. I'd go as far as to say there is no such thing as an atheist. Atheists are suppressing the truth that there is a God. They know deep down that there is. They choose to refuse to accept it. We don't know God in the sense that God wants us to know him because of our sin. But along with that, Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 speaks of the God of this age blinding the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So the one in whom freedom is to be found is hidden from sight 
by the work of the adversary and other fallen angels. So there's this sinister spiritual work that goes on in our world that is all part of our culture and it, it works along with our sinfulness to mean that we're doubly blind and we don't know God. And we're therefore slaves to that which, is by, which were by nature not God's. Paul here for the Galatians was referring back to their paganism. Paganism was the worship of the, the multitude of gods and goddesses, uh, the pantheon of uh, Greek religion and Roman religion at this time as well. The rituals and the regulations that were associated with that, the attempts every day to please the gods or to appease the gods so that life might go better for you than it had done the day before. And Paul says here, he says, you were enslaved to them that were by nature not gods. They were nothing. He's saying to them, you were wrapped up your whole life in your sinfulness and the blinding of Satan. You thought that's what life was all about and it was a slavery, trying to achieve a better life and some sort of um, salvation from these gods that were actually the product of people's minds. He's reminding them that they've come to know the one and only true God. I'd like us to go back to Acts chapter 14. Just to see when Paul was in Lystra, which is one of the churches in Galicia, how Paul encountered this head on and then You'll see how it links with uh, why he's written what he has here in Galatians chapter 4. If you're in Acts 14, find your way to verse 11. After Paul had seen a, a man who'd been lame from birth and actually had commanded that he get up and the man was and he was miraculously healed. Then it says in verse 11, it says, When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things. To the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. There was God using Paul and Barnabas in the encounter that they had with the lame man who was healed. Suddenly, people are like, whoa, these guys can do something that must be of the gods. And they attribute um, Paul and Barnabas the names of Zeus and Hermes. The gods have come down to be with us. And they're starting then to worship and this is an amazing thing that they've never seen before. All their life has been wrapped up in their thinking is coming to something very special. And Paul and Barnabas run out into the crowd and shout at them and say, no, we're human just like you. But let us tell you about the God who made everything. So these gods that you see in the heavens and that you think live in the sea and in the earth, God is the one who's made all of that. And he is the only God. 
4 verse 9 of Galatians. He says you were enslaved to that whole system of uh, that which by nature are not gods. God is the only God. He is the only one by nature who is God. He alone is God. He then goes on to say to them, but now that you know God, and then very quickly says, or rather, are known by God. He says something startling to them as a reminder of where they've come to from their slavery. He said that they've come into a personal, intimate relationship of knowledge with God. But then he's quick to say that it's God that has brought them into that. Now that you know God, maybe he's, he's concerned that they're going to think, oh, well, we've been the ones who've come to know God. He then reminds them, no, it, it's, it's God that has known you intimately. And he's brought you in to this salvation freedom that you know in Christ. Paul's careful with his language again. He uses the Greek word gnosko to describe this knowing, which means to know intimately at the personal level. Now, he could have used two other words. One of them which means to know factually. We all know that. You can know about something without ever experiencing it for yourself. Or there's another word that means to know through perceiving something. So you come into an understanding about something. But he didn't use those words. He very carefully used the word that meant personal, intimate, one-on-one connection. He says you've come to know God in that way. Rather, God has known you that way. You know, this sits alongside the truth that Paul brings out in Romans chapter 8 as well. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 into 30. Some of the most uh, wonderful verses that we've got in our, in our Bibles. But verse 29 of Romans 8 says, Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, conformed to the image of his Son fits with something later that Paul says, and we'll get there in a moment about Christ being formed in them. God has had a purpose from all of eternity that he would save people who would become like Christ. It's God's great purpose in salvation. That's what freedom should mean for us, that we become like Christ. I just want to say something about the foreknowledge there because it sits alongside uh, Galatians 4 verse 9, uh, Romans 8 verse 29. The foreknowledge that's referenced in Romans 8, 29, is not God seeing down the tunnel of time because he did not know something, that he might know something, that then he would predestine those that he saw would believe, that they would then be appointed to be saved. It can't be that, because then we're saying that God didn't know any, didn't know something at some point. Rather, the sense of the word there, and how it's used in other places by Paul very carefully, is it speaks of a an intimate knowing of someone. It's the same sense as we have it here in 4 verse 9. Intimate knowledge of someone. That's what the foreknowledge of God is. That he has known those who are his from all of eternity in Christ. Now you then bring in Ephesians chapter 1. Where it says that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. With what purpose? Uh, that... Well, you need to go and read Ephesians 1 and all of its glory. But we don't have the time to get into that. But it's this choosing in Christ from all eternity, this knowledge, intimate knowledge of individuals who are then, if we can put order to it, 
God has determined that they will be his. And he does everything to bring us to him. That we might be conformed to the image of his son. So that intimate knowledge that God has had of us as believers from all of eternity in Christ is so that we might become like Christ. That's the freedom that Paul is concerned that the Galatians are not going to progress and enjoy. The second part of 4 verse 9. Paul then says, given that God has known you in this way and has then brought you into knowing him through Christ. How is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? This is a reference to the the spiritual forces that are at work. That will still come in to the believer's experience to try to blind us and distract us from what it is that God would have for us. The demonic powers are behind the world religions of paganism, of various forms of religion, of religion that's rule-based, that attempts to enter into some perfect state by various means. But what is astounding, I think you've noticed it, is that Paul is saying that if you adopt and bring into your experience, Galatians, the things of Jewish law, ritual, it's the same as the things of paganism. Do you see the principle that Paul is driving at? Now, this is a big thing for an ex-Pharisee of the highest order to have said. Paul himself has come to the understanding that trying to do things to appease the gods or the only God by personal own effort is actually a work of the adversary to keep us from entering into salvation. That's where Paul has got to. He is, in a sense, equating the keeping of Jewish customs with the customs of paganism. Now you might think, no, you can't say that. That's what Paul says. We might hold up the keeping of Jewish customs as well. as part of the Old Testament, yes, but Christ has fulfilled it. and means that he has fulfilled them. They're no longer a requirement for us because he has satisfied God entirely on our behalf in keeping them. So he brings us into freedom from not having to observe them. So Paul is saying, you were once slaves to this whole business of the customs of paganism. Why do you want to go back into the slavery that's associated with Judaism, which is effectively the same thing, driven by the forces that are set against the things of God? James Montgomery Boyce, a commentator, says this. He says, Paul regards then, the Jewish observances, in exactly the same light as the pagan festivals. That is, under the control of and involving interaction with demonic spirits. Even the law, when distorted into a way of trying to earn salvation, can be used by Satan to increase man's bondage. That's why Paul is astounded 
that they're considering going there. And he's been shocking in what he's given them to warn them not to take this on. 4 verse 10, you're observing special days and months and seasons and years. Now he's drawing something from paganism here and bringing it into a comparison with Judaism. God in the Old Testament law had said that the people of Israel were to observe uh, days, uh, months, seasons and years. It was there as part of the instruction. But he's saying that paganism had the same thing. They were all about observing certain days and months and seasons and years. And their observance, if we take the pagans first, was associated with the, the stars and the moon and the sun. And actually the same thing for the Jews. But the Jews were not attributing deity to the sun and the moon, though some of them sadly fell into the trap of the pagan nations around them, who had attributed deity to all of the stars and the constellations and so on. Paul was saying that the things of Judaism that were associated with the keeping of days and weeks and months and years and seasons um, was related to the movement of the stars as we see them from earth. He said, be careful with that. Be careful with it. I just want to say something, a little side point here. Uh, the Lord brought an article to me to read when I was uh, away over the last month. And I don't know why I spent time reading it. Now I do know because of Galatians 4. Apparently millennials, those born between 1981 and 96, there's been a resurgence in astrology and horoscopes. I remember growing up that horoscopes were a bit of a thing. And uh, in the newspaper you could look at your horoscope and it would say something for some people that would steer their lives. In the USA, there's a $2.2 billion market in mystical services, as it's known. It's a big thing. A Guardian article back in March 2018, Roy Gillett, who's, uh, who's, who's a senior figure in the astrology uh, arena, says this about millennials. Those who've been born in that uh, period who have come through life and life has not really worked out as they expected it would do. He says, there's a lack of values everywhere you look. The things you relied on don't seem to be reliable. In that sort of culture, you look for something underpinning everything. And he says, it's the movement of the stars. The CEO of, a, of an app that is very popular for looking at astrology and horoscopes. He says that it helps people understand themselves and is a way of filtering through all of the chaos in the world. It's the reality for many that they're looking for something that is bigger than them, that gives some meaning to themselves and to the life that they're part of. Paul here is addressing the same thing. It's nothing new under the sun. And he's saying to these Christians, don't dabble with it. Don't go there. Because it's of the devil. That's what Paul is getting at. Whether it's associated with the keeping of special days and seasons and months and years. Associated with Judaism because it's linked with the movement of the planets and the stars. Or whether it's blatant paganism where there's the attributing of deity to those entities. So both of them are a work of, de of the devil to keep you bound in slavery. 
My warning to anybody here is that if you're in any way touching horoscopes and astrology, you get rid of it. Four verse 12. Paul pleads for them to become like him because he became like them. I'm just going to make a few quick comments then to wrap up the section at the end. He wants them to become like him. I was wondering, in what way? I think I have to come to it that Paul has come to a point in his own life, the strict Pharisee that he's described himself to be, has come to the understanding by the grace of God in his encounter with Christ. He's come to realise the release and the freedom from slavery that comes through faith in Christ and the reality of who Christ is. He's been set free from that. So actually when he came to them and they were enslaved to the things of paganism, they were actually free from the slavery that's associated with Judaism. So he says, I want you to become like me because I'm free of the things of Judaism now. I'm trusting in Christ. He says, you're set free. Now don't go back into what I was once enslaved by, I think is what he's getting at. He then mentions his illness. And there's a lot of speculation as to what his illness is. I'm not going to add to it. Only to say that the illness was an opportunity for Paul to speak of the freedom that was to be found in Christ. And it resulted in the establishing of churches of God. Sometimes we can think that the things of life that are a, a setback or a negative for us are actually a counter to what God would have us do. Paul's an example repeatedly of how something that comes in that would be considered a setback is actually used for God's glory. Here was an illness that resulted in a number of churches. People being saved and established as churches. He's then put in prison for a number of periods of time and we have the wealth of his writings that come out of the prison setting in the scriptures. Just an encouragement for us to see that whatever might come to us in life, if we're living in the freedom of Christ, it can be used for God's glory. He appeals to them again and says that you received me in the very beginning as if I was an angel, a messenger of God, and even as Christ Jesus himself. And what does that say? That's a bold thing to say. I think they, do you remember he made the reference, he says, Christ was portrayed to you as crucified. You saw him. It's almost as if in Paul himself there was this embodiment of Christ that the people could see. What an encouragement for us to realise that those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So that a life like that can have an impact on other people. But he's concerned for verse 16 that he's become an enemy because he's speaking the truth. Truth is a variable thing these days, people say. God's word is the truth. Standing up for God's word and anchoring ourselves in the truth of it is going to mean that some people will consider us enemies, even in the churches. But we should continue on faithfully. Very quickly then, I want us to see that Paul has this pain of childbirth, uh, 17 through to 20. He has this pain of childbirth that Christ would be formed in them again. He's already seen the beginning of that process when they came to faith. 
Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Salvation is so that we begin to look like Christ. And he's saying to them, don't go back on what has already happened. He says, I'm in agony again so that Christ will be formed in you. It tells us something of Paul's original state when he was preaching to these people the freedom that is to be found in Christ. He was in agony then, longing for Christ to be seen in them. And as these ones have come in to try and draw them away, he's in agony again that they would be protected from that. Paul uses the word morpho in Greek, which means to take the shape of or to be formed like. And it speaks of the active work of another on the material to help it to take the shape. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the work of God in us. Paul uses the language of transformation as well, that we're being transformed. We're dealing with this uh, with the youth at the Philippines camp recently, because we were in the same text, thinking about how something has to change its, its form sometimes so it can be moulded to then take on the shape of the mould. That's the transformation work, that's the process, and the end result is that which is conformed. So Paul expects that those who trust in Christ for salvation will look like and live like Christ. That's what freedom is in Paul's thinking. He doesn't actually see these as two different processes. That One is you get saved and then there's this next process that comes in that you become like Christ. But it's one process in God's working. That salvation is that you will be conformed to the image of his son. And I think Paul's already talked about that in his own experience when he's dealt with in Galatians 2.20. For to me to live is Christ. Yeah. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. He's realising that his life is not his own. It is by the power of the indwelling spirit to be lived, to be like Christ. Now then, we've got this long section where Paul goes back into Abraham and the son of promise and the son of human effort. I'm not going to spend long in here. But I just want to see how Paul is concluding his, his whole argument about this is not about human effort. This is about the divine miracle work of God. The freedom that Christ has died to bring to you and Christ has been raised to bring you into. He says it's a divine miracle. It's not a thing that can be achieved by human effort. Abraham and Sarah were given the promise, or Abraham was given the promise that he would have a son. And he had to wait and wait and wait. And he was old and Sarah was very old. So they took matters into their own hands and Sarah suggested, well, why don't you take my, my younger servant, Hagar? And uh, Abraham has sexual relations with her and a son has produced Ishmael. That was not God's way. That was human effort. In the course of time, according to God's timing, Sarah became pregnant and gave birth to the son of promise, the miracle. Isaac, the son of promise. What Paul does here in concluding his argument about how Judaism is as much slavery as paganism is slavery. Uh, he says that Hagar, the slave, equates to Mount Sinai where God gave the law to the people of Israel. Now, we would not say this if this were not in the scriptures. He's saying that Hagar, the slave, is, 
is like the place where God gave the law. And that relates to the present city of Jerusalem, as it was then and still is to some extent today. It's the center point of Judaism and all of the regulations that go with that. And he said, she is a symbol, as Mount Sinai is a symbol, as Jerusalem is a symbol of human effort to try and achieve salvation. And it'll bring nothing. It's not God's way. But in contrast then, he speaks of the divine miracle. And he speaks of the promise that was given, that is fulfilled. And he makes mention of the Jerusalem that is above. And she is our mother. This language that Paul uses to say, look, we are of the free one. We're not of human effort where we try to take things into our own hands and do it our way. But rather, we're those who are the product of the promise of God. He's made a promise. Because from all of eternity, those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And associated with that is the promise that he would save us through the Christ. Then is the quotation of Isaiah 54 verse 1. And I think it's just important to see that in that Paul uses it to show actually that the work of God will have a greater result always than the work that is put in by human effort alone. Human effort can never save. The divine miracle, according to the promise of God, can save. And because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, God will bring about something glorious for his glory. So he says to them, you brothers and sisters are like, like Isaac, our children of promise. The son born by the power of of the Spirit. This takes us back to thinking about how John opens his gospel. John chapter 1 verses 12 through 13 says, children that are born of God. It's a work of God. It's a miracle. And the Lord himself in John chapter 3 as he's speaking with Nicodemus in 7 and 8 there, he said, you must be born again, born of the Spirit. It's a work of God. It's a miracle that he comes and he does with us. And because he has known us from all of eternity in Christ, he shows us Christ as the only one in whom freedom is to be found. Freedom from the slavery of the things of this world that have no substance whatsoever, that are the product of the adversary, but also freedom from the slavery of trying to do things our own way that we might impress the only true God, thinking that we know him better than we do. Those two forms of slavery are just jettisoned when we come to Christ. Don't we love that the Lord Jesus as said, as it's recorded in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. That burden of sin, that life is not what it should be. This world is not what it should be. And it just seems to get heavier and heavier and heavier. And there's nothing we can do about it. Along with, then, the burden of the slavery of trying, then, our best out of our own efforts to make life better and to impress God enough so that we might be rewarded in the future. Those two slaveries, Jesus says, just let them go. Come to me. And we see him on the cross bearing the burden of our sin. The sin and its consequences, but also the slavery that's associated with it. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. 
and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So you're thinking, well, what's this got to do with us? Because we're not being told to go back in to keep the things of Judaism. Let's be careful that our focus is always in the freedom that is in Christ. It's all about him. Keeping ourselves there on him and spending time in passages that are difficult like this to show that God has done a miracle work in us so that Christ would be formed in us. That's not a work we can do on our own. It's a work that God will do with those who willingly give themselves to honour God according to his word, knowing that Christ has fulfilled all the things of the law to bring us into a life that, yes, follows the instructions of Christ, but it's meant for freedom, not slavery. Let's pray.